0: Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat, so why don't you get them together and work yourself through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at ThoroughlyEquipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus, the pastoral epistles, where Paul encourages, mentors, and instructs these young leaders in how to minister to leaders and lay people in local churches. My goal with this show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible, so please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. We've just finished a long discussion on Paul's counsel to Timothy about how to care for the widows in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 through 16. Now he turns in the rest of the chapter to how to handle elders. Starting in verses 17, we'll read through verse 21. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses, But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. So we start with two phrases in verse 17, elders who direct the affairs of the church well and those whose work is preaching and teaching. First of all, it's worth noting the word well, which indicates that Paul is looking for quality here, not simply warm bodies. But there's also an interesting translation issue here, both in chapter 5 and also referring back to Paul's description of elders in chapter 3, verses 2 and 5 in particular. Is this a reference to all elders, or is Paul imagining two different subsets of elders? There are elders who direct the affairs of the church, and there are those whose work is preaching and teaching. In the Reformed tradition, there are ruling elders and teaching elders. And I think de facto in many churches this is also the case, whether they have formal offices for it or not. It seems to me that elders should be able to teach, whether they focus on that or not is a different matter. If you're far enough in your walk and able to communicate effectively, then teaching is something everyone can do, whether it's something they devote their energy and resources to might be another matter. Now, in the middle of verse 17, Paul writes about the elders being worthy of double honor, and this general principle is then supported by references in verse 18 to oxen, which cites Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7, when Jesus speaks about laborers. And here Jesus is referring back to Leviticus 19.13 and Deuteronomy 24.15. As an aside, it's worth noting that by cross-referencing both Old Testament and New Testament verses, this implies that both were treated as equivalent in terms of authority. Neither comparison is especially flattering, but both of them signal hard work. We use the phrase today a workhorse and also underlying the justice of adequate pay. On the one hand chapter 3 verse 3 they're not to be a lover of money but that's not an excuse not to treat them well enough in financial terms now this is at least cash and or in kind sorts of compensation double honor could be a reference to double compensation in those financial terms or it could be a reference to cash plus respect it's not enough just to pay them off you're going to treat them appropriately as well on the financial support of this Paul is covering the financial support of widows and now church leaders. And the principle is clear. If you're going to take care of your oxen and common laborers, then clearly you're going to take care of God's ministers as well. Matthew Henry says, the ox only treads out the corn of which they make the bread that perishes, but ministers break the bread of life which endures forever. We see similar references in the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 31.4 describes a financial support of priests so they could focus on ministry. And elsewhere, Paul defends pastoral pay. For example, in Galatians 6.6, where he writes, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. But many times, he would personally refuse to be paid to avoid it as a stumbling block. Consider, for example, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 7 through 15 there's also at least an implied need and worth of respect and appreciation. John Stott comments on this. He says, we sometimes say or think the Christian workers need the appreciation only of the chief shepherd, but human beings are prone to discouragement and need to be affirmed. It's also worth noting that particularly on the financial side of things, that the compensation could be either too great or too small. This does not prescribe an exact number, but Paul is saying that you could go either direction. It's not triple honor, and it's not single honor either. Verse 19, he moves on to another topic with respect to elders. Do not entertain an accusation against one unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. And Notice he doesn't say convict them of it. He just says entertain. There's always going to be complaints. What do you do with them? The phrase brought by implies some severity and formality. This is meant to be a confrontation, not taking an anonymous letter or complaint from someone. It's supposed to be attached to another person and supposed to be done in a fairly formal way. Multiple witnesses versus merely one. This is talked about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Interesting small reference, 2 Corinthians 13.1 Paul uses this principle to apply to his third visit with them as if that was three witnesses. But notice the language here implies some finesse. It's two or three witnesses. And there is some spirit of the law and practice in how we interpret things among the accusers and the accused. The general principle here is to protect against slander. We saw that back in chapter 3 verses 2 and 7. We'll see it again in chapter 6 verse 1. So there's protection, but there's also accountability. When there's a problem, verse 20, those who sin publicly as leaders are to be rebuked publicly. Matthew Henry says that the plaster may be as wide as the wound. And then Paul also adds so that the others may take warning. So a few principles in play here. Private sin should be dealt with privately. Public sin should be dealt with publicly. The best example of this that I know of is in Galatians two, eleven through 14, when Paul confronts Peter in his hypocrisy toward the Gentiles. There's direct application to elders here, but we can certainly extend this principle as well in how we handle accusations against others. And notice both the direct and the indirect effects of this. It's addressed at leaders, but Paul knows that others will take warnings. There are some incentives here that are direct and indirect for those who are tempted to engage in sin. And then finally, verse 21, I charge you to keep these instructions without partiality and favoritism. He's speaking in general terms, or at least in context, with respect to the elders. There should be neither favoritism or partiality for or against the elders. They should be held to higher standards because they're leaders, but there's a limit to that. Likewise, they're certainly not to be held to lower standards. Paul also adds in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels, language similar to what he'll do in 2 Timothy 4.1, I think it begs the question, why so solemn? Is it just the topic's importance? Because so much is at stake, their judgment is to be handled properly. James 3.1 promises a stricter judgment for teachers. Or maybe we should infer that Timothy has had particular difficulties in this arena, and so Paul uses the more sober language. Either way, an important topic not to be treated lightly. Okay, let's move on to verses 22 through 25. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. So, first of all, verse 22, do not be hasty, a word he used in chapter 4, verse 14. Here it's in the laying on of hands. He'll make the same reference in 2 Timothy 1.6, and it's with respect to, in context, choosing elders. He talked about exactly this in chapter 3, verse 6, warning against choosing recent converts. So, in other words, there must be a thorough screening to avoid all the above problems through patience and discernment. It takes time to observe the prerequisites that Paul has laid out in chapter 3. Another interpretation I've seen, and at least a decent application, is that this could be a reference to restoring people to membership in the church rather than merely refellowshipping. You're welcome to come back, but don't give them too much authority or put them in a position where they can cause damage too soon. Later in verse 22, he says, do not share in the sins of others and keep yourself pure. It's possible he's referring forward to verse 23, but from the context, it looks like he's referring backward to verse 22a and the stuff he said before that. In verse 23, use a little wine. Stott notes that he's gone from saying, keep yourself pure to keep yourself fit. As he talked about in chapter 4, verse 8, spiritual and physical health and training are both important. Paul particularly links it to his stomach and illnesses, and this underlines the difficulty in that time of obtaining clean water and the medicinal properties of wine. Matthew Henry says wine should be used as a help and not a hindrance to our work and usefulness. This is not an endorsement of drunkenness, and it really isn't a proof text for drinking even at all, since Paul is only making a medicinal reference at this point. One can certainly make a decent case for modest drinking, but this is not the verse to use to make that case. Paul goes a little further here, stop drinking only water. This could allude to Timothy's acquiescence to the false teacher's asceticism. We saw that referenced in chapter 4, verse 3, although we don't know if this comes under that or not. And there was a strain in Jewish thought, including the Nazarites in number 6 and the Rechabites in Jeremiah 35 that insisted on teetotaling. But the irony here, as is the case with many legalisms, is that not drinking can be a stumbling block. So drinking and not drinking both have the potential to be a stumbling block depending on the context, and it's not drinking that's the problem here. In sum, it's always worth noting that teetotaling is potentially wise counsel, but that's not the same as a religious obligation for all. Finally, in verses 24 and 25, Paul talks about sins and good deeds. Some are obvious. Some trail behind them, but they cannot be hidden. So, those are the general principles. Sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes it's easy to see. Is Paul making another general point here, or is he referring back to the warning that he gave in verse 22? It's possible to read this as just one more agenda item for Paul's list. But it's also possible to read the end of 22 into 23 as a parentheses and that he's making increasingly tangential points before returning to his primary topic, wrapping things up here in chapter five. What's the general principle? Well, overlooking the bad or good in prospective candidates. Back to don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. You're going to need time to see what people really are. Stott notes, attractive personalities often have hidden weaknesses, whereas unassuming people often have hidden strengths, and that is certainly the case. We shouldn't be suspicious of people who have attractive personalities, but we certainly shouldn't overlook and assume things about people who are on the quieter side. All right, let's take a break here. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Anna's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and the show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we got to the end of chapter 5 of 1 Timothy that takes us to chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they're fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. First thing is that although this may seem random after what we just read in chapter 5, in context this is the third of four important groups for Timothy to relate with following the widows and elders of chapter 5, and he'll wrap this section up with verses 3-5 through when he talks about false teachers. Verse one, the slaves are defined as those who are under the yoke of slavery. This can also refer to indentured servants as well. We'll wanna hold that distinction in mind because when Americans think of slavery, we think of slavery of a particular sort, but there were a variety of options available under Old Testament law and under contemporary practice. The phrase here under the yoke was a term used for animals, especially oxen, and was a figurative term for oppressive rule. In contrast, you have the ministry of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 and 30, where he promises the easy yoke. And the idea of slavery, of course, involves coercion, authority, and property, and this is distinguished from the idea of an indentured servitude, where I'm in debt or getting training for something and I sell myself to you for your use for some number of years to pay off a debt. Slavery is a denial of the dignity of the human person, and indentured servitude is a matter that is quite different. In any case, between slaves and masters, there is a social, legal, and economic chasm, but that's not the case spiritually. Paul writes about this elsewhere, most famously, Galatians 3.28, "...there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." This is a really big deal in the early church when slaves and masters were suddenly in community together. So you see Paul addressing this in Ephesians 6, the end of Colossians 3, and in the great little jewel of a letter to Philemon. Back to verse 1, Paul says that all of them should consider their masters worthy of full respect. Ephesians 6.5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. 1 Peter 2.18, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. The Greek word for respect here is the same one used of widows in chapter 5, verse 3, and elders in chapter 5, verse 17, and of God in chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 6, verse 16. So this is a high level of respect indeed. And the irony here is that slavery could easily reduce dignity and respect, but slaves were not to reduce the dignity of their masters. Stott observes every human being is worthy of honor, even pagan slave owners, because they have been made in the image of God. Once we perceive the intrinsic worth of human beings by creation, and therefore recognize them as worthy of honor, all of our relationships are enriched and ennobled. And that goes for slave, master, or anything in between. Verse 1, Paul continues by giving a reason so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Paul is also concerned about this in Titus 2, verses 9 and 10, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The direct application here is obvious, but there are some less direct applications here to lifestyle evangelism, work, and dealing with all sorts of secondary matters. Don't make them primary. Don't let things get in the way of the gospel. Don't put down stumbling blocks when so many are naturally available. In verse 2, Paul deals with a potential caveat. What about believing masters? And Paul says, no, you're supposed to not show them less respect. Later in verse 2, instead, serve them even better. Ephesians 6.6, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Colossians three twenty-two through twenty-four: Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eyes are on you, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Here in 1 Timothy six verse two, Paul gives other reasons. Since those who benefit from their service are believers, they should be treated better and their masters should be dear to them. Walvert and Zuck observed they should redouble their efforts rather than reduce their service, or as Stott puts it, far from being an excuse for neglect, it should be a stimulus to service. It's interesting that there's no direct counsel here for masters, and that could just be the context, but it is dealt with elsewhere, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3 and 4, and there is an indirect poke here that the master should be respectable. If another is commanded to give you respect, the implied command to you is that you should be as respectable as possible. So some general points as we finish out this section. First, in both cases, there should be hard work, and this is in opposition to his warnings against idleness in chapter 5, verse 13, and it was implied in the prerequisites for elders and deacons. Paul's strongest language on this is in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and you can check out my podcast and the coverage of the importance of work from a Christian worldview through those great books. Second, we see an interesting example of the need to ask whether both parties are Christians before dispensing counsel. There are many occasions where what is best for you to do depends on who you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a fellow believer, then you have one set of paths to pursue. If you're dealing with a non-believer, often the counsel is quite different, and we see Paul doing that here. Third, there is some indirect application to Christian bosses and employees. These days, we don't have anything with respect to slavery in developed countries except sex trafficking. And we don't have a lot with respect to indentured servanthood, at least anything that would be like what they had two millennia ago. There are arrangements like this, but more like an employee-employer relationship than certainly slavery or even indentured servanthood. But still, there's some application here to how employees should handle bosses, whether they're Christian or not. Within reason, not extending to idolatry or sin, Christians should generally be the best workers, the most diligent, if not the most skilled. I love Daniel 6 4 on this, where the wise men were looking for dirt to accuse him before the king, and it said they could find nothing on him. There was neither negligence nor corruption, neither sins of commission nor omission. And it should be the same with us in the workplace. We should be among the best workers. We should be among the best citizens. As long as we're not called to idolatry and sin, then we should be giving our best for the reasons that Paul talks about here. Or more broadly, the first institution given to mankind is our work. And that includes career and job. Genesis 2, the work given to Adam is the first thing, even before relationship with Eve. And so we need to make sure that we're pursuing our work in a way that honors God. Work as a pre-fall institution, not something just to be tolerated, but something to be redeemed at the foot of the cross. Last topic is that Paul does not call for an end to slavery here, although he does critique slave traders in chapter 1, verse 10, that's out of bounds. But you gotta consider the context is so different here. Slavery was mostly from debt or prisoners of war, even in Rome. Now, in Judaism, kidnapping was a capital crime. We see that in Deuteronomy 24-7, so that was not appropriate within Jewish religion. But he's in Rome at the time, and this is simply impossible to change. Paul's picking his battles here. It makes no sense to put this crusade ahead of the gospel. All it would do is get you killed and kill the religion as well. So there's no call for Christians to engage in sin here, but the world is doing its thing and so sometimes we battle that. Sometimes we weigh in on injustices. Sometimes we battle them, but we have to pick our battles. So there are practical and ethical considerations in such things, and especially when we're not in a position to change the institution. The other thing to note, and this is intensely practical, is that Paul is focused as always on doing one's best within one's circumstances. It's more about character than circumstance. Think of Daniel 3. The fiery furnace, and they're not worried about whether God's going to deliver them or not. They think He will, but even if not, we're not bowing to you. Israel and Babylon, they didn't want to be there, but the prophets keep telling them to settle down and live out the life that God has put in front of them. And we recognize that we're all under a yoke of some sort. The question is, to sin or Christ? And these are the big questions in front of us. What are we going to do with the hands that have been dealt to us? What do we do with the life we've been given? Dallas Willard says God can only bless us where we're at. And we may not want to be there, but that's where we are. We're often obsessed with changing our circumstances when we should be passionate about doing the best we can within those circumstances. Along those lines, if you've been praying to get out of certain circumstances, I challenge you for the next week to pray to stay in them, but to go through them in a way that honors God. It will change your prayer life. It will change how you view your relationship with God and this world and this life. Finally, at the end of verse 2, Timothy is told to teach and urge these things on them. And again, we don't know whether Paul is referring forward or backwards, but at the least it provides a transition to chapter 6 verses 3 through 5, but we don't have time to get to that until next time. Time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. The previous segment, we finished up 1 Timothy 6 verses 1 and 2. And now we move to verses three through five. This allows us to address the fourth of four groups that Paul is addressing to Timothy late in the letter. It was widows, elders, slaves, and now finally false teachers. Another way to think about the structure of the letter is that from here to the end, there are five charges about false teachers, the Christian poor, the man of God, the Christian rich, and the churches. I'm going to start with the last part of verse 2, since we're not sure whether it connects best to verse 2 or to verse 3, and then read through verse 5. These are the things that you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ into godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So false teachers, obviously the big theme, and it's a familiar one in 1 Timothy. We saw it in chapter 1 verses 3 through 7, and again in chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, will appear again in 2 Timothy and Titus as well. Notice that he's also referring to both individuals, the reference to anyone in verse 3, and he twice in verse 4, and a group. Later in verse 5, he says, between men of a corrupt mind. And so this can be an individual problem, a group problem, or both. Barclay is very helpful in the context here. He notes that in the Christian church, compared to today, there were many wandering prophets, and the Christian service was much more informal than it is now. And we've talked about this, how part of what Paul's doing in the pastoral epistles And in all of his epistles is laying out the structure of the church, the importance of beliefs, creeds, and the like. But Barclay also notes that the pagan society also was probably contributing to what Paul is critiquing here, that the Greeks were known for having sophists or wise men who would sell philosophy. They talked and thought cleverly, and they were quite popular. Barclay says they were the equivalent of the modern pop star, and they competed with each other which helps us understand some of the things that Paul is saying in this passage. Verse three says they were teaching false, literally different doctrines. The Greek word here is heteros, meaning different. And verse five, they have a corrupt mind. And this is in contrast to what they ought to be doing, which is in verse three, to agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. The result of this is that they are conceited in verse four. Barclay says his desire is not to display Christ, but to display himself. He's more concerned to gain a following for himself than for Jesus Christ. The second blast from Paul is later in verse 4 that they understand nothing. And then putting the phrases together, commentators have a lot of fun with that. One said that it means these people are conceited idiots or pompous ignoramuses. In any case, certainly self-righteous with ignorance and what a brutal combination that is. John Stott says, this is strong language, but then the false teacher is guilty of a serious offense, for to disagree with Paul on this is to disagree with Christ. Later in verse 4, Paul says they have an unhealthy interest in, literally are sick about, controversies. In verse 3, he'd used the language of sound or healthy, and now he's talking about them being unhealthy, and they're into these controversies and quarrels, literally battles about words. Barclay says that they're into speculation and argument more than life. I think one thing that's interesting here is it does not deny some interest in things that are controversial and quarrelsome. It's an unhealthy interest that Paul is critiquing here. Now, sound, again, literally is the idea of healthy. It appears eight times in the pastoral epistles and nowhere else from Paul. So it's definitely on his mind here. It's the Greek word Hygieno, which is where we get the word hygiene from. It appears in the other letters, pastoral epistles, in a way that's worth quoting. 2 Timothy 1.13, What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound or healthy teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. And 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound or healthy doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And the result of all this is late in verse 4 into verse 5 references to fruit and pretty rough stuff here envy resentment strife contention malicious talk evil suspicions when they should be trying to work on trust and constant friction in other words they're very competitive they're suspicious they're going to hurl insults at each other when they're losing and this is the very opposite of the truth and love it's probably neither truthful nor loving Matthew Henry says these eat the life and power of religion. Stott says it's a complete breakdown in human relationships. When people's minds are twisted, their relationships become twisted too. Later in verse 5, he uses the phrase, They've been robbed of the truth. Reminds me of Luke eight twelve, where Jesus says, Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved and the parable of the seeds this implies they had the truth at one time and maybe passivity not being alert is causing them to lose it they're falling prey to these false teachers later in verse 5 they think that godliness is a means to financial gain again critiquing the false teachers this appeared in chapter 3 and also in chapter 5 verse 17 it was certainly a problem in Ephesus If you think back to Paul's time there in Acts 19, when he does the miracle with the slave girl, and everyone's upset because it's cutting into business. When Paul leaves Ephesus, he talks about the importance of greed and that he has nothing to do with it. Acts 20, verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. And so this is a really big deal to avoid greed, financial gain, to seek out the gospel, for its power and its proclivity to give wealth. 2 Corinthians eleven seven 7, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? Remember that Paul makes the argument elsewhere, we just saw this in chapter 5, that people should be paid, but not paid too much, and they certainly shouldn't see it as a matter of financial gain. Paul, often to prevent stumbling blocks, would refuse money for what he was doing to avoid just his trouble, but now it's being held against him. He's not charging and therefore people would say, well, that just shows he's not really worth any money. Ephesians 5.3, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So it's an interesting tension, right? The elders are deserving of money, but it, they can't be seen as in it for the money. 1 Peter 5, 2, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Historically, we think of the sale of indulgences in the Catholic Church, part of which led to the Protestant Reformation under Martin Luther. Think of ministries today without public audits, unwilling to be transparent about their finances, or TV preachers and evangelists, and harder core versions of the health and wealth gospel. All of this is going to set the table for what he's going to talk about in verses 6 through 19 with respect to money, but it starts with this blast against the false teachers, and that part of the problem is that they're into it for the money. If we're to sum up this passage, he's judging them on the basis of truth, the results they have, the terrible results with respect to unity, and their motivation that they were deviating from sound doctrine, dividing the church, and motivated by greed. As Stott puts it, they are heterodox, divisive, and covetous. So from here, Paul segues into how believers should deal with money. So we're getting to issues here of Christian stewardship and discipleship with respect to material possessions. But before we get there, let's take a break. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we covered 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 5, and now we're going to talk about verses 6 through 8. I'm going to throw in the last part of 5 to get the context as we move into the next chunk of this passage. He's talking about false teachers who, quote, think that godliness is a means to financial gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain, probably a phrase you've heard before. And again, it's in contrast to the end of verse 5, the gain that the false teacher is looking for, which is purely financial. This is reminiscent of what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4, 8, that godliness has value for all things. And here that's including contentment. Now, a number of different words here and combinations that are of interest to us. First of all, godliness and contentment, and they should be matched together. If you're godly, then contentment goes with it. Contentness probably implies godliness, but certainly the other way around. The Life Application Bible says this statement is the key to spiritual growth and personal fulfillment. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. On the idea of gain, this includes both legitimate material blessings, remember he just talked about paying the elders back in chapter 5, verse 17, and at least spiritual blessings. Probably the most powerful expression of this is at the opening of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in christ and again this is in contrast to what we talked about in verse 5 illegitimate material and false spiritual gains at least from the false teachers perspective psalm thirty-seven, sixteen: better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked Walvert and zook say godliness does not give financial gain it itself is gain when accompanied with contentment. So financial gain can be part of it. We'll talk about this as we move through 1 Timothy 6, but the overarching answer is spiritual contentment, spiritual gains, if you will. And in this, it's ironic that he's talking about both contentment and gain. Contentment is being content with what you have. Gain implies you're getting more. And so sort of an interesting phrase here that contentment is a form of gain. Now, the idea of contentment here is literally self-sufficiency, and it's a different word than that which is translated by the NIV as content in verse 8. What does he mean here? Well, self-sufficiency is a loaded word from a Christian perspective, but there are some healthy versions of it. For example, self-sufficiency is opposed to taking from others and being a burden. He's been critiquing that in 1 Timothy 5, and he does elsewhere as well. It's certainly self-sufficiency as an improvement over laziness, apathy, stoicism. It doesn't eliminate ambition or hard work, and we saw this throughout First and Second Thessalonians. But it's also not a self-sufficiency that is dependent on circumstances. It's only in the context of dependence on God and living a life of godliness. In other words, it's Christ-sufficiency. 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Philippians 4.11-13, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength." Or back to the famous Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I'm reminded of the old classic hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. A focus on Christ leads to a contentment and a self-sufficiency, which is spiritual in nature. Neither poverty nor wealth can provide it. Again, we'll talk about both themes as we continue to move through First Timothy 6. And here we're focusing on avoiding a greed over what I do not have or do have versus a gratitude for whatever I do have. Paul then moves to logic in verse 7, given that we brought nothing into the world and can take nothing out of it. Of course, you've probably heard this from elsewhere in the Bible. Job expresses it at the end of chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And so Job, in the middle of that terrible set of trials, uses the same logic. He recognizes the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but the name of the Lord should always be praised because we worship a good and great God. The psalmist, chapter 49, verses 16 through 20, Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die. Their splendor will not descend with them. Though while they live, they count themselves blessed, and people praise you when you prosper, they will join those who have gone before them, who will never again see the light of life. People who have wealth but lack understanding are like the beasts that perish. That passage sounds very Ecclesiastes-like, so let's go there for our next citation, chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil, as everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain, since they toil for the wind? And Jesus alludes to this mindset throughout the Gospels and his teachings and the parables, but the most direct is the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, verses 15 through 21. Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest, He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Again, since I won't have time to get to it in a few segments, it's worth noting, it's important to note that this is not a full critique of wealth. Notice that Jesus' parable, it's not being wealthy per se, but what one does with it, the pursuit of those things, and not being rich toward God, and we'll continue to see that unfold in Paul's argument as well. But for now, he's merely grounding it in the logic and the perspective of you can't take it with you. Matthew Henry says, whatever we have had since our birth, we are obliged to the providence of God for it. Even the things we have, it's the gift of God. Whether money or beauty or power or intellect or skills of various sorts, we may work for part of it, but it's the providence of God. It's the grace of God that we have any of these things. Stott says, possessions are only the traveling luggage of time, travel light. Then in verse 8, Paul says, having food and clothing, we will be content with that. Clothing is what the NIV renders, the Greek word that's literally covering, so it could mean clothing and or shelter. But in any case, he's pointed to just the basic needs here. He's not talking about being destitute, because that's having none of these things. You have to be able to survive at some level to be content. Again, he's talking about the very basics here. Matthew Henry goes back to verse 7 and says, "...we cannot be poorer than when we came into this world, and yet then we were provided for." Therefore, let us trust in God for the remaining part of our pilgrimage. If we came in with nothing and we were taken care of, then it's going to be okay. Food and clothing, in fact, are the very things Christ told us not to worry about, since God would take care of those. The passage in Luke 12 continues that I talked about earlier. It's also echoed in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about the birds and the flowers and the grass, that they are taken care of by God. And if he loves them, he loves you more and he's going to take care of you. Don't worry about it. Be content with what you have. Again, we see Paul's famous focus here. The character is much more important than circumstances. What you do with what you have is more important from a biblical perspective than what you have. Focus on the right things. A couple of caveats as we finish this section. Barclay notes that it is not that Christianity pleads for poverty. There is no special virtue in being poor or in having a constant struggle to make ends meet. So poverty has no special bearing. Wealth has temptations, again, part of what he'll talk about in 1 Timothy 6, but this is not praising poverty per se. Poverty and contentment are not the same thing. You can be poor and content, you can be wealthy and not content. You can be poor and not content, you can be wealthy and content. And so there's no necessary relationship between the two. Paul is not focused on what you have, that's the point, he's focused on contentedness. The second caveat to offer here is this is not an excuse to ignore or condone injustice and oppression. You can't look at the God of the Bible or even the ministry of Jesus and fail to understand that God cares about justice. Again, the passage is not about that. It's more about personal simplicity and honoring God within the circumstances of our lives. Stott says, so Paul is not advocating austerity or asceticism a contentment in place of materialism and covetousness. In a word, he's not for poverty against wealth, but for contentment against covetousness. Okay, let's dig into verses nine and 10. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and end many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Very colorful language here that Paul is talking about. It's interesting that this connects back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Very much connected to what he's talking about here. In a way, maybe he's connecting it back to slavery, his discussion in 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. Matthew Henry notes that moving from verses 6 through 8, where he talks about the excellency of contentment, now in verses 9 through 10, he's talking about the evil of covetousness. The subject, verse 9, people who want to get rich, also redefined later in verse 10 as some people eager for money. Walvert and Zook described this as two sides of the same coin. They want to get rich. They're eager for money. Now, this is not the same as those who are rich or those who have money necessarily, and it's also a subjective thing. It'll be much more objective when he talks about what the wealthy should do in verses 17 through 19. Here it's not about what you have as much as your attitude toward wealth that is the issue. It's not possessions, but attitude that is being critiqued here. Matthew Henry notes that people may have money and yet not love it, and of course it's also true vice versa. The text here implies that this audience doesn't have much money, but these principles certainly apply universally, even if in context we're still talking about the poor. After defining the noun in verses 9 and 10, he uses some vivid verbs in verse 9 to describe what's going on here. They fall into temptation and a trap, same language he used in chapter 3, verse 7, and we'll use again in 2 Timothy 2, 26, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Two great verses on this, Proverbs thirty, verses eight and nine. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much and disown you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. In both cases, right, it's that money has too high of a priority, whether rich or poor. Ecclesiastes five ten Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. We certainly see this in the Bible. It starts with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Maybe the most vivid example and sad example, since if he just waited a little bit longer, it could have been his, is in Joshua 7 with Achan. You have Micah in Judges 18. That's an obscure story, but powerful. And, of course, Judas and his greed and Ananias and Sapphira with the early church in Acts 5. On the temptation of it, the irony is that the Lord's prayer includes a desire not to be put into temptation, but here, with respect to money, one puts oneself in that position. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The problem is that with the pursuit of wealth, people seem to be volunteering for the temptation because of the allure of wealth. God's not going to put you in that position, but we often do put ourselves in the same position. The result of this is foolish and harmful. It's bad for you, and it's silly and indefensible on top of that. It also puts you into many harmful desires. Greed is a sin itself, which can be defined as idolatry, Ephesians 5.5, and it certainly easily leads to other sins. And finally, can plunge men into ruin and destruction, a metaphor for sinking and drowning in this life. And it's a disaster in this life and destruction in the future for eternity. Why gain the world and lose your soul? We'll have more to say on these verses, but we've run out of time for today. Lord, be with us as we avoid the temptations of wealth and look forward to the opportunities for wealth that Paul will talk about in the next passage. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.